Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority, CIUT 89.5 FM, your local community radio station, your podcast application, Harbinger Media Network. David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter. Stefan Christian, Erwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. You don't get a middle name today. Not for our 900th episode? Uh, okay, yeah, you're right. I forgot. Lauren <laughs> Elizabeth Cor Latour. And this is, yeah, the 900th episode of The Green Majority, which is frickin' nuts. Stefan will be interviewing Jessica Green, Dr. Jessica Green, at the University of Toronto. Later this episode, she is a professor of political science, and they are discussing climate fiction. I also get a definitive answer as to whether or not you should be buying carbon offsets for all of the weird things you do. I, she's a expert in carbon markets. And so I was like, I'm curious what your opinion is. And she gives a remarkably definitive answer. Is the answer like, it's what I think it is, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. This is indeed the 900th episode of the Green Majority um, that began broadcasting on these airwaves in 2006. I do not know what or why we're going to do some climate news, get to that interview. But Stefan wanted to discuss the uh, state of climate action in 2006 as compared with 2024, just as a way of measuring what has changed since this show began, which is clearly an indication of his notion that this show has had some sort of wide-ranging impact on the global response to the climate crisis because Stefan is a man of grandiloquence who loves uh, himself. In 2006, we were pumping out 3,208,000 barrels of oil. Lauren, do you want to guess how many barrels of oil Canada, after its incredible effort to tackle climate change, is currently creating? You told me before we got on the show that we've reduced a little bit, but not by much. I should admit that what I, we were talking about before the show was... Uh, emissions. Emissions. Okay. No. Okay. Well, wait. And this is hard because like maybe our emissions... It's like it's like the, it's that whole thing where like intensity has maybe gone down, but maybe yes. the actual number of barrels hasn't gone down. But there was a big... There have been like at least two kind of big busts in the oil and gas industry in Canada since then. Oh, my God. I feel like these are questions that I should have, like, a, an approximate idea of based on my line of work. But, like, I have truly no idea. You could... Uh, tell you. It is 5.5 million. So we went up from 3 million to 5 million barrels of oil. So in our great effort to reduce emissions, we are pumping 2 million more barrels of oil a day. The emissions are do tell a slightly better story although not much of one. Uh, in 2006, it wasn't our peak year of emissions, um, but in 2006, we emitted seven, uh, 725 megatons of emissions. Of carbon equivalent is the, is the, is the answer. So, um, And then the... For some reason, the StatsCan website is like years behind, so I can't tell you exactly the number from even last year. I only have the number from 2021, which is obviously a COVID year. I did look at some other data that told me that in 2022, it's only about 2% higher than this number, so it's within range. But anyways, the 
we we got ourselves down to 670 by 2021. We're probably now up again, though, to like 680, 690, or whatever. Hopefully still under the 700 megaton mark. But like, if you look at the emissions from 1991 to now, it's... It's a slight slope up and then a slight slope down. We're not seeing a huge change. And so to get to like the... Bunny Hill slope? Just like... Yeah, not, not even that. It's, it's not honestly... Even bunny not even Bunny Hill. No, you, can't, you cannot toboggan on this hill. That's not what's happening. Um, and it should be noted that the 2030 goal Canada set out is a 40% to 45% emission reduction from 2005, which they use, uh, so it's like one year before. But either way, that means we need to get to, bad math, but about 400 megatons in the next eight, no, six years. We have to cut basically 300 megatons of emissions out of our economy in six years. And like, I... It can be done. It must be done. Is yes. like my official party line. It can and must be achieved. Ooh, that's a that's a that's difficult. That's yeah, a that hard. Mean, that's that's hard not a bunny hill. That's, that's not a bunny. No, hill. that's not a bunny hill. That's black diamond, baby. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if we get like if if we get baby. What's his name? Pierre. I almost called him Baby Pete. Um, <laughs> if, we, if we if we get baby Pierre in in 2025 that's gonna be a really 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 hard target to hit but again it can and must be hit it can and must be achieved that is my official party line yeah and the party being the green majority party that is our official yes (laughs) so we're sort of trying to imagine what the difference is really between 2006 and and now and i and i think that obviously some of the bigger things are that like a lot of the hardware and the actual economics of the issue have changed pretty significantly. Like in 2006 and seven, the conversation really was about, we can't afford to tackle this. We can't afford to do this work. And, and now very clearly the choice to stay on fossil fuels is the more expensive choice, both from a, both from a, the actual cost to produce the, the electricity to all of the other, non-included costs that we ignore from fossil fuels and so like the economics have significantly changed if the actual emission reduction has not really been there yes yes like you said like the economics and the technology like have changed but i appreciate the way you phrase that like the political choice to stay on fossil fuels is is what is that defining factor that's holding us back that has been holding us back from not achieving more in the last 17 years 17 years nine yeah. in, in the last 900 weeks that's, that's basically yeah. um and and the difference between now and the next 900 weeks like it it is 100 it's it is a choice to stay on fossil fuels it, it is no longer uh it, it's it's not an inevitability it's not a must it's not an oh my goodness we couldn't possibly the the technology doesn't exist bs it's a choice yeah. that that we remain in this like I don't know I was gonna make a joke earlier about just like I don't know 17 years ago they started doing this show and just like through in inertia you know what I mean it's just like it started and now we're on this path and ne'er shall we be deterred we do not have to remain in climate inertia right it it it, it we can choose to no longer be in this state. Um, so rebels in Yemen are attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea. They're still, they're attacking more now. 
um, to pressure Israel to stop its ethnic cleansing of Palestine. The U.S. and the U.K. have bombed 73 places in Yemen in response, and the U.S. is now stopping all aid to Yemen. The U.S. has been supporting Saudi Arabia and the UAE in their war against Yemeni rebels since 2015. Canada, along with every other Western allied country, recently rejected South Africa's argument that Israel is committing a genocide in Palestine, which was presented at the International Court of Justice. And most major Western news outlets did not even air South Africa's presentation. I've recently learned that William Nordhaus uh, was the first economist to quantify the cost of climate change. And he won not the Nobel, but the Nobel Memorial Prize of some kind. Uh, Consequently, his ideas were adopted by the IPCC, the EPA, various global risk managers, financial companies, and universities around the world who teach climate economics. Um, And he says that the optimal range for global warming is between 2.7 degrees Celsius and 3.5. And so he believes that the economy can adapt to, can, can remain as is. Uh, given that level of warming. Um, and so he's still being taken seriously by uh, important institutions. And cities and towns across Canada are being squeezed financially by climate disasters and are requesting billions more in aid from provinces and Ottawa, which they're, of course, currently not receiving. I'm sorry, I was trying to figure out whether or not Ireland actually supported the... Uh the thing it sounds like they haven't so they okay. i mean i think i mean i think they haven't condemned it i think they just haven't sort of like supported it so b- perhaps not all every western allied country rejected south africa's yeah, argument I, but I, yeah, I, 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 but not one of them has supported it yeah right yeah i mean yeah they they sound like they don't i mean it sounds like they're not sort of intervening um but anyways um so i mean the thing that struck me most about this story, uh, the story about uh, the Yemen in, in the United States, is that in Biden's explanation for this, he basically states and accepts that the pro the sort of blocking of boats that had been done uh, had been bloodless uh, because it had been up until that point they had, they had basically sort of like commandeered boats or they had sort of threatened them, but like no one had died from this blockade. And, and then the response was to like bomb six sites with like half the Western world being like, cool, let's do this. And to me, that's like, you know, beyond a pale. And it's not like this is the first time any the Western nations have done something, but it really was sort of thing like, so you're saying that even the way that these people are trying to sort of like, you know, push back where they're actively trying not to harm people, or at least not, you know, they haven't killed anybody. And your response is to just be like, well, we're the people with all the guns. So we're just going to bomb everything. It was a little mind blowing to me to like to have that be the reality that clearly what's being stated here is that quote unquote global commerce is somehow more important than the lives of these people. Like you're bombing people in a country you have no connection to except for this one reason, which is only global commerce. No, it's 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 sort of like the u.s copying it's like it's like when you occasionally get somebody saying like it's like that idea of like oh like the quiet part out loud and it's like the idea that 
um, uh, for, for a long time now, a common criticism of um, nonviolent direct action has been the idea that like nonviolent direct action. I, I, I think I'm really par I'm paraphrasing Malcolm X here. Like, what am I doing? Why am I not? <laughs> this isn't a Lauren thought. This is me paraphrasing Malcolm X. But it was like he had that one kind of like idea where it was like nonviolent direct action only works if you have a if you have uh, if the power that be like in any way respects your humanity. Um, because only then will they respect the, like the integrity of the position you're taking and value your life over whatever it is that like they're, that they are protecting instead of, instead of the person. And like, this is a very obvious instance of like, oh, the powers that be do not value human life over, over their financial goals in this case. So it's like, it's, it's, it's. So yeah, you try to engage in some version of, of of honestly what I consider this Yemeni blockade to be, which is like a kind of nonviolent direct action, because like like you said, they hadn't killed anybody. Human lives weren't really being put at risk here. They tried to engage in nonviolent direct action and were met in return with like quite literal like firefights and bombings. And so then the next, I don't know, in, in my mind, the thing to happen next would be for these Yemeni people to then respond in kind with physical force. But of course, if they did that, then then we'd call them terrorists and, and they'd be condemned. And uh, oh, my gosh, it's just it's everything that's been happening over the last few months with Israel's assault on Gaza and the way the Western world has been so, uh, I don't know, hypocritically in support of Israel. And then everything going down with the ICJ is just it's it's making so plain all of the hypocrisy and the violence and the prioritization of capital over human life, like at every single step and how racist and how Islamophobic and how much Orientalism still exists in our global and, and like these, uh, uh, I was going to say global systems that doesn't quite make sense, but like, but you know what I'm trying to say? It's all just, it's so, this is one of those situations where you watch everything that's been happening and and you think like, how could anybody possibly still like stand by their man if their man is like liberal politics? And yet, of course they are. Of course they are. Because this is all just like predicated on the notion that this is what needs to happen and this is the price we pay for comfort. Yeah. And and, and it's that idea that comfort should be prioritized over really even one human life. You know, it's like the idea that you should just kill anyone because the price of, you know, like your 14th TV has gone up is to me bonkers and and the and the idea that the the state can then claim well like you know if you increase prices then other people are harmed well you could just help them instead like instead of spending all the money to send bombs over there you could just feed the people who need to be fed here and that would be a still much better way of doing this and no one would die just for the sake that you've decided that mm -hmm you want to be able to send boats through the system and not go around uh, South Africa, which is the yeah. other shipping route. When there, are new, there are new reports now of uh, the Yemeni rebels now shooting missiles at some more ships. So I don't, yeah. I don't think any casualties, but yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that there was no 
violence at all. It was just that in the Biden readout, like it literally had mentioned the fact that no one had died until they bombed everyone. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody died this... until we decided to kill someone. Yeah, basically. Like that part of it was just so. No, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying the rocket thing is more recent, so we'll see oh, what happens sure. after that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. Okay, so moving on. The Canada Energy Regulator has approved a request to use a different kind of pipe for part of the Trans Mountain Expansion Line. The regulator initially rejected the company's request, uh, saying, according to the Energy Mix, that the Trans Mountain uh, did not demonstrate compliance with their quality management program, did not show the quality of the materials uh, would meet their standard for the rest of the pipeline, and did not demonstrate how they would conduct certain inspections. Um, and they also... Um, failed to address the environmental impacts of the material itself that they would use and how they would and and uh and the environmental fallout of not being able to conduct certain inspections as well um but the regulator recently changed its mind oh also the company failed to give uh adequate responses to their core request for more information um, but now the regulator has changed, it, changed his mind after hearing from the company, so they had a hearing. And now they're saying that that section of the pipe actually doesn't have to meet the quality standard. Um, and finally, land defenders Slado, a.k.a. Molly Wickham, and Shaylin Sampson and Corey Jacko have been found guilty of criminal contempt of court for fighting against the coastal gasoline pipeline in 2021 in Wet'suwet'en. So remember, they were they defied the, at that injunction and occupied the tiny house, and now they're being... Uh, they've been found guilty of contempt of court and criminal charges. That's extra. That's the. It's not a. But to me, sorry, it's not what. Like, I think there's a difference between sort of like a bylaw or some of that mm. in criminal charges. The like criminal charges right. create extra th blockades from you to get different services and things like that. So to me, I don't know about you guys, but to mm. me, this this. Uh, notion from this I, this statement from the regulator that the pipe doesn't have to meet the quality standards to me that just sounds like it's more likely to leak or something well and also the fact that you're the company that gets to be like well what if we just made this less good and then the people who are protesting uh i mean it's not the same pipeline not the same no pipeline. yeah uh, Molly yeah Wickham and, and yeah it's cjl Right. Yeah. But the fact like it, it, it just does really speak to the, the two tiered system of I'm a company. I can just do what I want and I will talk to you. And, and, and the government sort of feels like with companies, it's always like asking, you know, it's like maybe you could listen to our laws. That would be great. And then with, you know, with land defenders and activists, it's like, you know, a fascistic jackboot type of response. And just the difference in responses to the powers that are the trans mountain like one last thing about trans mountain because it also was released recently was that the canadian government has just guaranteed another two billion dollars in loans um which means that the price tag could almost be 35 billion dollars um which is unbelievably expensive 
and absolutely nothing compared to the price, say, that uh, these land defenders cost CGL for their time blocking it, and yet their lives will be sort of inherently more difficult the rest of their life, and literally no one will be worse off who works for Trans Mountain despite how much money it is. They, they they are, in fact, certainly making bank. Like, the longer this goes on, the more money they'll make. Like, no, exactly. Fun. And, like, and with these choices they're making to, like, cut corners and make the process less expensive for themselves, it's, it's because they're not... Remember, they're not even planning on operating this pipeline. They're planning on building it and immediately turning around and selling it. Like, that's... In a, there are a million reasons why they don't care that they're putting in, like, I don't know, less, like, lower quality materials. But, like, they are planning on selling it. They're getting a bucket load of loans from the government to put this thing together. And I'm sure making bank and annual bonuses based off of it. And then they're immediately turning around and selling it. Like, that's, yes, there there will be no consequences for the people that, like, run this company. Um at any point in this process. Yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah. I mean, to, to me, the back to back of this, this highlights the, the two tiered legal system that exists in our in world and the ways in which, you know, it goes, man, it goes back to, honestly to the, the same types of conversations you're having previously about liberal order versus, you know, versus the reality. Like it just, every part of this is how much violence is needed to maintain our system that is not working out great for people. And then you get these conversations about like, why aren't people feeling good about good vibes right now? And it's like, exactly. because we see what's happening and there's not a path forward from the, in this version, which the interview, I think, hopefully begins to talk about like the importance of future casting better worlds. And so like we, right. a little bit about that, but still. Well, and like, for instance, like when you're talking about like this two tiered legal system, this, I don't know, you could almost call it a three tiered legal system, like going back to that, going back to the case with the ICJ, it's like, it's again, it's a, it's a demonstration from wealthy white Western nations that, oh no, the ICJ is, is only a thing and it only has consequences tied to it when we decide that it does. It's a weapon for the West to use against the East. It, it, it's, it's not a weapon for, for other countries to, pol to police our actions. Don't, don't get it twisted. The same way that like, like you said, it's, it's the way uh, the Canadian government, like, I don't know, uh, tries to get companies to fall in line in Canada versus how they get the rest of us and, and namely in, in indigenous peoples and peoples of color to fall in line are totally different. I, it's like, it's, I don't know the way they talk to pipeline companies and the way they like try to get them to fall in line with regulation is it's, it's almost the same as like, if you've, if you've seen like gentle parents on TikTok where they're just like, now we're going to go to bed in a few minutes. Is that okay? I'm going to give you the choice between these pajamas and these pajamas, but we're going to try to go to bed soon. Like it's, it's, that's the same tone. And then, like you said, the one they, the tone they take with the rest of us is mm. abusive and terrible. Yeah. If anyone wants to make a uh, gentle parent Trudeau talking to fossil fuel companies, that idea is free. Take it, run with it. Do I have any 350 pals uh, who can like, who can put something cute on TikTok for me? I yeah. think that'd be great. That's great. <laughs> we will go to a music break and return with Stefan's interview with Jessica Green, Dr. Jessica Green, uh, a climate, a political scientist at the University of Toronto. Vibes.
The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are here with Dr. Jessica Green, a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, to talk a little bit about climate futurism and imagining better worlds. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you just give us a bit of a background of sort of how you came into the environmental movement and then also how you sort of think about the space right now? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I won't go into the deep origin stories, but I, I've always been interested in the environment, passionate about, about the environment. As you know, as early as a teenager, I started doing organizing for local groups and then for the Sierra Student Coalition. And I sort of realized that policy was the, an important lever for political change. And so that's kind of sparked my interest in policy, which I studied as an undergrad and a grad student. And I, I wasn't planning to become an academic. I, I worked in a bunch of NGOs. I worked for the UN for a few years. And I started to realize that First of all, I was kind of out over my skis a little bit in terms of my under, my knowledge and my ability to do kind of policy-oriented research. So I went back for a PhD, planning to go back into the policy world, but I just sort of wound up wound up in the academy. And I'm actually very, very happy to be here because I think it's it, it is a great place to sort of connect people, be part of movement building networks and kind of pushing the conversation in directions that it needs to go. That's such a funny thing to sort of imagine going back and then be rarely. I think people find themselves accidentally in academia. I feel like I I know. (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird it is kind of a weird story in that regard. But yeah, it just kind of ended up that way. (laughs) Yeah, totally fair. And so I don't know if you know this, but the show, people listening to the show would know this, that this happens to be our 900th episode of The Green Majority. So, Wow, uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. And, and so what that led us to doing a little bit is like sort of thinking about the future. Because I did the math and I figured out that if we made it to 1800 episodes or twice as many, we'd be at 2040, like near the end of the year in 2040 was my math. Maybe in 2041, I forget exactly. And so... It's kind of amazing that we are basically, you know, because so many hopes and dreams are pinned on on 2040. I feel like that, you know, there's a lot of plans we have for 2030 and then 2040 and then 2050 is when like, okay, we've done it. And, you know, each day we keep getting close. We keep like moving slowly in the direction of maybe doing something. And, you know, from my understanding, the worst case scenarios have decreased in likelihood and the medium bad to still very bad scenarios are more likely now 
But, you know, some progress is certainly being made. But one thing that we've talked about a bit on the show and, and I'd love to talk to you about is the fact that what we don't have a lot of until recently is books and fiction that sort of imagine a world where we've completed this. Like, if you took the number of books that showed a post-apocalyptic world and the number of books that showed a world where we solves climate change, it would be stark. <laughs> like, right. off air, start getting talking about the, some of these books that have begun to show, you know, a, a path towards the future. So why do you think it's important for us to imagine futures where we've succeeded, you know, and not just futures where we have failed? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I would point to Rebecca Solnit's work on sort of hope and the importance of hope in the age of the climate crisis. It's like, yeah, we're barraged every day by terrible news, more extreme weather events, more displacements, all, all you know, the whole litany of, of terrible things that are happening because of the climate crisis. And so it's hard to have hope, right? And it's hard to keep fighting the good fight if you are completely... <laughs> Um, you know, in a state of despair. And so I think that what climate fiction can do is help us have hope because it helps make concrete, even if it's in the imaginary, like what that looks like. And it can help you kind of keep having hope that, wow, there is, e even if it's something that we can imagine, it's a concrete conceptualization of what the world looks like when we've won, when we've done better, you know, when we've when we've actually made meaningful change to address climate change, to address inequality, to address, you know, any number of the planetary boundaries that we are currently exceeding. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I've told this story a few times, but early on in my U of T undergrad, I was in a class where someone asked us, one of our environmental professors, sort of was like, who here can imagine the end of the world? And like everyone raised their hand. And I was like, who here oh, can imagine the end of capitalism? And like, half, if not less than half, raise their hands. And it's like, if it's easier to imagine the end of the world, like a true collapse, than it is to imagine a world that is outside our current economic system, that tells us something about, you know, where we're putting our effort yeah. in imagination. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that Solnit has said this, but like hope is an act of resistance, right? So yeah, I mean, if you are just kind of giving in to like, oh, we're all, you know, we're all doomed, then you're not going to fight, right? And so investing in this hope is really, really an act of resistance. One of my kind of earliest engagements with climate fiction, I can't remember how I stumbled upon it, but I was in my my 20s, I think maybe an undergrad when I read probably one of the earlier kind of environmental fiction works called Ecotopia by Ernest Callenbach. And it's a great book. In fact, it is, this podcast is prompting me to think about going back and reading it again. It's about, it imagines a world in which California, Oregon, and Washington have seceded from the United States because of its environmental policies and created this kind of sustainable, you know, republic and the narrator is a journalist who is an envoy from the United States who goes to kind of report on what this, you know, what this sustainable republic looks like. And, and it, you know, it details all of the things, what schools look like, how communities are set up, what kinds of transportation they use, what the hospitals are like, like just down to the very sort of nitty gritty of, of daily life. And, you, and I was like, wow, this, this seems pretty good, right? This seems pretty hopeful. And, you know, it doesn't obviously engage in all the politics 
politics of how you get there, but but still just that engaging in that imaginary is really is really uplifting. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that, you know, even if you don't articulate how you get there, giving people an end goal they can imagine is still a big like if you're doing a if you're planning a big project, what you will do first usually is like a work back plan, right? Like you will start at what am I doing at the end of this? And then you will work back on how to figure it out. And it does feel a little bit right now like we are as an earth trying to do the opposite. We're trying to be like, well, I can do this little thing and then this little thing and then this little thing and then this little thing without ever really conceptualizing or explaining to anyone what it will all build to. We just sort of have this sort of vague future. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why our political imaginations have been shrunk and and that has consequences for policy, right? It is like, you know, this sort of incrementalism of like, well, we could never we could never get that passed or like, you know, we could never we could never get the money for that. So let's just do this littler thing. But what we know about systemic transformation, right, is that incremental steps rarely add up to getting us to the tipping points that we need for like a wholesale, you know, the wholesale change of equilibrium, right? So yeah, one one of my colleagues, I'm not a big baseball fan, but he described this as small ball, which is in baseball where you sort of like just get the, you know, the little hits to get on base and load up the bases and move people along, right? Rather than swinging for the fences. And we're just not swinging for the fences. And yeah, so this can help us kind of think about how to do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. As a big as a big baseball fan, I appreciate the metaphors. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, shout out to Professor Michael Barnett at yeah. George Washington University. That was his, <laughs> his, yeah, we, his metaphor. Yeah. I mean, you know, a bloop and a blast is a, is a baseball term that, you know, scorcher runs that way and you don't have to get 16 hits. But not all the 2016 Royals, everyone, which is such a deep cut. No one who's listening to this will understand that sentence. But but I promise you it made sense. <laughs> so back to the concept of speculative fiction, I'm curious what what you look for, you know, when you're looking for good speculation, what what interests you about it or what makes you think it's like good or bad? And then if you have a favorite book you'd recommend, what would it be? Yeah. OK, so there's a lot of questions there. I mean, I think for me, one of the things is I really like with Egotopia, like I really like the sort of concreteness. Right. I mean, that helps you imagine like, what would my life look like if I lived in this place, you know? And I, I think, and it's a testimony to the, to the author's ability to imagine, which I think is really, really appealing and, and potentially could be very transformative for a bunch of people who read it. Right. Cause it's like not this kind of abstract, abstract stuff, but about, you know, changing daily lives. I'm as a political scientist, obviously I'm also really interested in the politics. Right. And so for me, understanding not just what the goal is, but how potentially we get there is is really interesting. And for that reason, I really am a big fan of Kim Stanley Robinson's work. Obviously, the Ministry for the Future made a huge sort of generated huge buzz, I guess. in was it 2020 when it came out? I don't know. It was part of the pandemic. It was a bit a bit it might have uh, been just before been like late 2019. Just before, and maybe, maybe around. Yeah, I also read it during the yeah. pandemic, so I feel yeah, the, the, it's a bit of a blur. But, you know, what I really appreciated about that, like I study the global governance of climate change. So, you know, we talk about the cops, but 
there's a lot more to it. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Kyoto Protocol, the associated carbon markets and all kinds of things. And he really sort of is, I think that book is, a it, it's, you know, interesting in a lot of different ways, but it's a tour de force in sort of policy communication. Like the guy really understands the process uh, which underpin our kind of current governance system, and he communicates them in a readily understandable way, which I think is, you know, just appeal, appeal to the deep nerd in me. So I, I really, I, I like that book. The other, the other book that I really like, which I actually, I used to teach, I teach a class called The Planet's Last Frontiers, and we start by reading the sort of proto-constitution of Mars that is written by the Terrans, who are the people who were born on Earth but then moved to Mars, and the kind of first-gen Martians who are actually born there, who are biologically different because of the environmental conditions that they were raised in. And so there's a, there's a constitutional convention, and they bring together all of these sort of different clans that live in different places on the planet, and it talks about how that negotiation process happens. It's very much like about sort of deliberative democracy. And I think that's, you know, showing the kind of both the messiness of, of that process, but also how it's, you know, really built around personal relationships, around trust, around, you know, what we call in, in international relations, like reciprocity, you know, that if you're gonna, if you're gonna make these deep commitments, you really have to, you really have to be invested in on a number of levels but with the both the cause and the people that you're kind of negotiating with. And so just getting these sort of insights into like, what are, like, how is the sausage made, right? Because obviously politics is either, you know, a total, people just sort of throw up their hands and say, well, they're all idiots and I can't make a difference um, or they're distrustful or it's this sort of bloodless thing that happens you know, in policy papers and, and, you know, parliamentary debates. And so this is really kind of, it re reintroduces the kind of human factor of politics, which I think is a, you know, it, it, it gives, again, it gives people hope because it's not just this sort of abstract thing of people kind of somewhere far away and disconnected, but real people talking about, you know, stuff that actually matters in their daily lives. Yeah, for sure. And I, I do think that even the ability to begin to imagine different decision making processes is is huge, right? Like we we live in a world that is so dominated by one kind of decision making, at least here in, you know, like the Western world, we sort of have and each one has its own intricacies, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera but it does feel hegemonic in a way and that like to imagine that we could be trying to explore other avenues of decision making feels very surprising you know like like i i'm the thing i go back to a couple of times is the fact that like the uk you know did use the citizens assembly model for some of their climate change decision making which is why they sort of took such a leap forward when so many people did not and in here in canada there's a model where we can do that for electoral reform. And that is something that sort of doesn't even exist in our, our modern day thinking. Like we're so specifically focused on the one way we've done things previously that to even imagine new ways of doing things does feel revolutionary. 
Yeah. I mean, the other person, the other, I would say both the other thing that I think climate fiction helps us understand and, and the author that I associate with that is acts of resistance and like what, you know, sort of revolution can take many different forms. And Margaret Atwood's, Atwood's trilogy, Mad Adam, is amazing in this way, right? Because it sort of shows this how, you know, the core and the periphery and how the periphery is this kind of class of, of kind of people who haven't, you know, signed up for, I guess, the sort of dystopian world <laughs> that everybody else lives in. And they, they, they perpetrate all kinds of small acts of resistance to fight the kind of universal commodification of everything. And this is things like, you know, living in small communities, sharing seeds, sharing the duties of parenthood, like all kinds of like reimagining again, like what our daily lives look like and how that can be a political act, even if it doesn't seem explicitly like that. Yeah, for sure. And so some of your colleagues released a publication called We Did It, um, which yeah, I think it mildly self-explanatory, but can you tell us and the listeners a little more about the idea behind it and, and what it is? Yeah, so I I am embarrassed to say that I don't know who the second professor is, but my colleague, Matt Hoffman, who's also in the political science department, team taught a class with, I think, a, someone in comparative literature. And so it was poli-sci and complet. And the 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 task of the class was basically to write some speculative fiction ar around climate change and what Canada would look like in 2050 if we did actually uh, achieve net zero. And so it's a bunch of different sort of short vignettes of people and places of like, what do you do in 20, like, what can your profession be in 2050 if we're not burning fossil fuels anymore? And, you know, what does your community look like? And, you know, a little bit of like, how did we get there? A lot of it is really focused on sort of local politics and yeah, community-based kind of initiatives and change. And and I think it's just like a really, a really cool way to sort of think about politics because when we teach it, you know, it's sort of like here again, it's this, this idea of, oh yeah, we have these fixed structures, these fixed, you know, processes and and, you know, governance models, right? But this is like, well, then what if we threw those out? Like, we know about those, we're learning about those. So this isn't just, you know, pulling rabbits out of a hat. But what if we learned about those and then said, okay, we're going to like throw the possibilities open to all different kinds of things, but those are going to be based in our understanding of what the status quo is and based in sort of some theoretical models of how we generate political change. And so, yeah, I think I, I want to take the class. It sounds really cool. Yeah, for sure. And so along the same lines of this conversation, I'm curious if you were to cast forward and, and to a time that we solve climate change, you know, because like we sort of can see the, for those who have read Minister of the Future, you know, he gives a certain set of ways that it's been done. I like the joke that he's just really big on eco-terrorism and and I, if I had one criticism of the book, it would be that he really seems to think that sulfur in the atmosphere will not come back to bite us. And I just can't imagine how that is the case. Like, I truly, like, I get why you would think you would need that. And I, and, and it's well done in the book, but I kept waiting for it to come back and, and harm the planet. And it just didn't. Right. And I was sort of like, man, 
Like, I just can't believe that a, that using Papungsolv Namasphere is a solution. But anyways, there's a the the political mechanisms and other work he's done. It's interesting. I'm not going to like he clearly did his research by all means. Absolutely. No one can question that. And so the yeah. so the work remains interesting. But for you personally, I'd be curious if you cast forward, we're writing a speculative fiction. How would you see us sort of getting to that tipping point? I, I, I think it's about getting people, getting more people to imagine what sort of the good life looks like for them. You know, I mean, like, you know, you think about like conversations and ex- policy experiments around like a four day work week, right? People are like, yeah, that sounds awesome. It's like, what if we had more leisure? What, what would, you know, how would society have to change if we like, maybe we would have more parks or libraries or, you know, public performances or things like that. So I, I, I think, yeah, if I were to write something, it would be sort of getting people to under, yeah, to think about that, to think about like, what, what does the good life look like for you? I don't know. Maybe you choose your own adventure. <laughs> I like that. Like goosebumps style, you know, like if yes. you know what it is, go to page 75. Exactly. I mean, that'd be a fun, that'd be a fun option. You think I, I, transit is a good idea. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And flip to 79. If you think instead everyone should bicycle, go to page 34. Honestly, right. right. I'd read that and then if you, if you choose the like SUV subsidies, then you, you know, you go and the news dies. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, some of them have to end, right? Like you gotta, you gotta have some, some negative endings too, or the book doesn't work. Cool. Okay. So this is a bit of a switch, but it, it's because whenever I have someone who's like an expert in a field, I occasionally get a question or two that's been based, sort of popping around in my head that I'm like, oh, well, I have a chance to find out and answer this question. And so I sort of selfishly use the time to do that. So that's what's it, what it is. But I would say it's also a question that comes up uh, a lot to me, sort of as someone people know is vaguely in the environment field, people ask this question a fair amount, which is about carbon markets. And so there's a two-part question. The first is really just, do you see carbon markets as a part of a climate-safe future? Like, is that a necessary part of a future where we are doing things? And more specifically, though, do you think that, like, the individual people should currently be paying to offset their carbon? Like, is that a, like, if someone's going flying somewhere, should they spend the $32 to buy the 15 tons of carbon on some incredibly cheap carbon market. Or, I mean, I, I say that it's because all carbon markets are very cheap. And so you're never spending the amount of money I think it should be. I'm not trying to say that there's only pearls. Anyways, but that's the question. How do you feel about carbon markets sort of ca- forecasting into sort of the eventual future where we've succeeded? Okay. So in general, carbon markets, not a fan. I have done a lot of research that shows that they're not terribly effective in reducing emissions. And moreover, the the emissions that they do reduce are sort of incremental changes we were talking about before. So you're not going to get systemic transformation from carbon markets. You you might get some increases in, in efficiency. You might persuade you know, some energy companies to shut down their coal plants, which, okay, no, you know, it, particularly in the short term, like if we're talking, you know, before 2030, like those things are important, but they're not going to get us across the line. Now, of course, there's not any one policy that is. So that's number one. Number two is not, you know, when carbon markets can mean a lot of things. I am definitely not a fan of cap and trade, cap and invest, whatever you want to whatever you want to call it, because they're just, really difficult to create, 
to maintain, and they're totally prone to gaming, and they're often designed poorly. Like there's a reason that oil and gas companies are pro cap and trade, right? because they win from this. Usually what happens is governments say, oh, well, we, we want to discourage leakage, right? We, we were afraid that if we put a price on carbon, you're going to move your operation somewhere else. So what do we do? We give you free allowances, which is essentially a subsidy, right? Because an allowance is a form of currency. And so when you give that for free, it's just free money, right? So cap and trade, I think, is deeply, deeply problematic. Also often relies on offsets, which we'll get to in the next part of the question, but not a fan. Carbon taxes are a different story because a tax is a tax. And those can be, you know, they're much easier to administer and implement. And, you know, they raise money. And if that money is earmarked for good climate stuff, then that's important. Now, of course, people hate taxes. And so politically, I think both forms of carbon pricing are really problematic and they're prone to exacerbate polarization in Western countries around climate change. They're being appropriated by the far right as like these, you know, the deep state is coming for your stakes or your SUVs or whatever it is. So I, I just think that they're not there. It's a losing proposition when you're not getting a whole lot of reductions and you're incurring a lot of political costs. So in general, not a big fan. Um, carbon taxes, I think, are going to be part of the. I mean, carbon pricing is growing. It's it's very telling that I, I think it's about 40 percent of the global economy is now under a carbon price. And yet, you know, emissions keep rising. So. It's not, you know, I mean, obviously correlation is not causation, but it's it's not it's not great. Like the optics aren't great. Um, as for offsetting, I have written a lot about this. There's been a huge amount of reporting in The Guardian and a lot of sort of smaller environmental publications that, you know, it's just most of the offsets are bogus because the way that you have to calculate what constitutes an offset is difficult, if not impossible, and therefore very prone to gaming. So an offset is basically commodifies the hypothetical absence of carbon dioxide or some other greenhouse gas emission, which like if someone is coming door to door and knocked on your door and said, would you like to buy the hypothetical absence of this thing because it's good for the environment? You'd be like, no, I would not. That's a sham. <laughs> but, you know, we, people do it. Companies do it. Governments do it because it helps them sort of square the numbers. And I think that's basically all offsets are good for. So I don't think that buying, you know, offsetting your trip to wherever is a good idea. I would say take that $32 and donate it to, you know, uh, political party, a neighborhood coalition, a library, a food bank, you know, whatever, whatever mechanism you think will help build political capital to make lasting change, like throwing your money down this like weird rabbit hole of carbon middle men is, is not, not the way to go. All right. Well, that was more definitive than I expected, but I appreciate definitive <laughs> answer. Last question uh, before we go, because we're already getting out of time, and you might have answered it before, but I want to give you a chance to either add anything or do anything else. What books would you recommend to our listeners if they're sort of interested in this topic? 
Ooh, okay. Well, I mean, I think like, yeah, like I mentioned before, Ecotopia by Ernest Callenbach is sort of the OG, uh, you know, climate fiction um, story. And it's an easy, breezy read. I mean, Ministry for the Future is like a commitment, right? It's like, I don't know, five, 600 pages, something like that. Same with the Mad Adam trilogy. It's fantastic, but also a big commitment. A smaller sort of maybe slightly more user-friendly. So I would, I would recommend Ecotopia and then Maybe a more user-friendly one by Kim Stanley Robinson is New York 2140, which imagines New York in 2140. And basically, I think is really cool because it has a bunch of political elements, but it's also like, well, how do we, how do we engineer cities in an era of sea level rise? Like, what do they look like? So for the sort of people who are interested in like planning and infrastructure and stuff like that, it's, it's pretty cool. A little depressing, but pretty cool. Um, and, and, you know, it's like you, you've got your vertical farms, you've got all these kinds of things. So, so yeah, I would recommend that one is a, is a little bit of a, of a, maybe then you can work your way up to the more, more advanced commitments in climate. Amazing. Yeah. I've always thought of it as 700 words, but that might, I mean, might be mixing that up with Red Mars, which was also a million words. Um, I, I think so, it might be seven. It's a, it's a big read. Yeah. It's, it's a, a tome for sure. Well, thank you so much. This has been Dr. Dr. Jessica Green, the professor of political science at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for your time, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks, Stefan. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. It's not easy.